Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody here again today. And uh, it's actually warming up a little in the middle of November. Not The first of it didn't start out too well, but anyway, uh, we're glad to see you here today. We're in uh, Matthew chapter 21 again, and the title of the message today is The Stone the Builders Rejected. And uh, we're going to be reading verses 18 through 46. Verses 18 through 46. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man... We are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and he did the same thing to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures... The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you 
The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the proclamation of his word. When I was a student at Southwestern Seminary many years ago, I had a philosophy of religions class taught by Dr. Russ Bush. Now, Dr. Bush was a brilliant guy, and he had a kind of different kind of personality. He was kind of introverted. He was very different. But he, like I said, he was brilliant. Dr. Bush and a, and a man named Thomas Nettles co-wrote a book that many, changed, changed, uh, many say changed history called ba- The Baptist in the Bible. And the book called Southern Baptist and Baptist Back to the Proper Understanding of the Total Trustworthiness of the Inerrancy of the Bible. Dr. Bush not only served at Southwestern, but he went to Southeastern Seminary as professor of uh, as a professor and academic vice dean and dean of faculty. And in 2006, he became uh, dean emeritus of the first uh, and the first director of the L. Rush Bush Center for Faith and Culture. And then in 2008, he died after a battle with cancer. Now I was in his class. It was in the early 80s. Now, Dr. Bush had a teaching style that I was not used to. That was very different from most people that I had ever sat under. It became evident that he conducted his style. He had material that he wanted to present. And he really discouraged people from asking questions. Uh, and I really didn't like that style. I just, it just, I like to ask questions. And so one day, I thought I'd challenge his methods. I determined to ask what I thought was a very engaging and thoughtful question. Well, have you heard the expression, you caught a tiger by the tail? Well, Dr. Bush answered my question in such a way that I never dared to doubt his teaching methods again, and I never asked another question in his class. Now, in Matthew 21... We find Jesus challenging the leadership of the nation in very direct ways. He entered Jerusalem in a parade-like manner, uh, fulfilling prophecy. He cast out buyers and the sellers from the temple so people could worship. He then healed the outcast of the temple, and he accepted the praise of people as he was marching into Jerusalem, and the children who were running around the temple uh, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. These actions by Jesus was uh, more than the leadership of the nation could stomach at that time because they had not accepted. In fact, they were very becoming very hostile to Jesus. And so they decided they were going to publicly challenge Jesus. And that's what we see in the, in the part of Matthew 21 that we read. But when they did, they would soon regret what they had done. They would soon regret that they dared to challenge Jesus in this. And as we look at this chapter, I want us to see this timeless truth, this eternal truth. And it's this. Christ Jesus denounces fruitless religion and replaces it with his life-giving presence among his people. 
Christ Jesus denounces fruitless religion and replaces it with his life-giving presence among his people. Now, as we look at the leadership of Israel, we see that they had the appearances of being godly men and men of faith. But that appearance was not reality. And there is a kind of religion, even today, uh, that looks alive but is not alive at all. It's just, it's just uh, a ritual and routine, and it has no life or power in it. In fact, Jesus later said about these religious leaders, he called them whitewashed tombs. Wow. There's a kind of religion that appears like it's true faith, but it does not understand the work and the presence of God, even when it's right before them. This religion does religious things, but it doesn't love God supremely, and it doesn't care about people. It doesn't care about the struggles of people. And from the outside, it looks like there's life, but inside, it's false. And, and, and when you look at it closely, you find that the life of God is not in it. Well, what can we learn about how to identify some things that characterize false religion? First of all, see this. False religion looks alive but never makes a difference in how people live. False religion looks alive, but it never makes a difference in how people live. Now, during this week of Passover, Jesus was teaching in Jerusalem during the day, and he was staying in Bethany at night, um, which was a village very close to Jerusalem. Jesus had friends that lived in Bethany. We, we learned from John, there was a guy named Simon, whom Jesus probably cured of leprosy, who lived in Bethany. Jesus' friends, Lazarus and Martha and Mary, lived in Bethany. So Jesus had people who would, who would allow him to stay and his disciples to stay in their house. And so he would teach in Jerusalem during the day. He would walk to Bethany at night, stay with his friends, and then he would come back uh, to Jerusalem during the, the next morning. Well, as Jesus was walking back to Jerusalem from Bethany, the scripture says he became hungry. You know, Jesus was fully God, he was fully man, and he became hungry. And he saw a fig tree and went to it, and he found nothing on it besides leaves. That's a very kind of different story in the scripture. Now, Mark tells us that it was not the season for figs. But, but the truth is, if a, if a fig tree had leaves, it should have immature fruit already growing. Usually, if it's my understanding, and I'm not a horticulturalist, but it's my understanding that the, that the, fig, uh, that the fruit of the fig tree appears, and then the leaves it, uh, appear on the tree. So the immature fruit and the leaves appear basically at the same time. Maybe the fruit's just a little bit before the leaves. And so he saw a fig tree in leaf, but he went to it and he found nothing on it. He found nothing on it. If there was leaves, if there were leaves, there should have been figs, even though even immature figs on the tree. But it only looked alive and it was not producing any fruit. It should, it should have been bearing fruit. It gave all appearances of being alive, but it did not bear fruit. 
It did not do what it was created to do. It was a worthless tree. It appeared alive, but it was basically dead. And so Jesus pronounced on this uh, fig tree uh, the reality that was already true. May no fruit ever come upon you again. Now, this is a strange story, isn't it? It, remi- it reminds us, if you go to Luke 13, Jesus told about a parable of fig tree. And, uh, and he was talking about repentance in that thir- uh, Luke 13. And this is the parable from Luke 13. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to the vine dresser, the one who takes care of the tree, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. <coughs> Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now that was the the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree wasn't bearing fruit like it should have. And uh, the owner says, cut the tree down. And the the husbandman, those who cared for the fig tree, said, just give it just a little more time. Give it a little more time. And if, and if it bears fruit, good. If not, we'll cut it down later. Now think about that in relation to this story. Jesus is near the end of his ministry. And how long had he ministered? He ministered for three years, right? In Jerusalem, his public ministry lasted three years. And continually during those years, he invited the people and the leadership of the nation to believe and receive him as Messiah. And instead of uh, accepting him, they came to become openly hostile, even violently hostile to Jesus. There was no fruit of repentance among them. When Jesus cursed the fig tree, it was kind of a living parable that the judgment of God had arrived upon these leaders. Even though the leadership of the nation looked religious and spiritual, Their hatred of Jesus and the true ways of the living God showed that it was dead in itself. And it it was so dead that it would condemn Jesus to the death of the cross. You see, false religion looks alive, but it doesn't care about God's truth and God's judgment and God's justice. False religion doesn't care if it hurts other people. If it destroys other people. Many things are done today in the name of religion. That don't. That are actually done out of hatred, right? You can think you're doing things in, uh, for God. But if you're killing people, you're not doing things for God. False religion looks alive. But it's willing to sacrifice the innocence. And the innocent in order to keep its position of power. False religion looks alive, but it bears no fruit of being alive. The fruit of the Spirit, uh, Paul tells us, the, the Bible tells us, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so real religion, really the presence of Jesus in our lives should produce these things, must produce these things. False religion looks alive, but it rejoices in lies and not the truth. Hate and not love. The elevation of man instead of the glory of God. 
False religion never reveals itself in supreme love for God and sacrificial love for others. False religion looks alive, but it never makes a difference in how people live. We've all known people that said they loved God, but they treated other people like dirt, right? We've all known people like that. And maybe sometimes if we're not careful, if we're not guarding our hearts, we we can act like that too. And that's disgraceful to the one we follow, to the one who loved his enemies and prays and told us to pray for those who despitefully use them. False religion looks alive, but it never makes a difference in how people live. There's a second identifying mark to false religion, and that's this. False religion refuses to recognize God's presence and power in its very midst. False religion refuses to recognize God's presence and power in its very midst. Now, when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders, those who were responsible for how the temple operated, came to Jesus and they confronted him. They said to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you authority? How can you come into the temple and just drive people out? We're in charge of the temple, basically, they would say. How can you, how can you come to the temple and let children run around uh, singing your praises? You enter Jerusalem with the parade. You cast out buyers and sellers and heals. You accept the praise from children as if you were God. Who gave you this authority? That was their question. That's what they wanted to know. And in a way, they were trying to trap Jesus with this question. The simple answer to this question, there was a simple answer. And it was this. Jesus could have truthfully said he was entrusted with this authority by God the Father. Jesus could have truthfully said that as the Son of God, he possessed the authority inherently. But if Jesus would have answered this way on that day, they could have accused him of blasphemy. They could have taken him away that very moment. So Jesus answered the question, which was with a question, which was very common in that day. Jesus asked them a question. He says, I'll give you a straight answer to this question if you'll answer me, uh, if you'll answer my question. And then this was his questions. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from men? Well, they discussed their answer, and they said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you, didn't, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you, why didn't you follow John and do the things that he told you to do? And, and then they say, but if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John was a prophet. The crowd loved John, but the leadership did not. And so if the, the leadership said John was not a prophet then they would be in trouble with this crowd and they were always worried about causing a riot in Jerusalem. Jesus is confronting his confronters. They raised the question of his authority. Jesus raised the question of their competence to judge such an issue. Were they they uncertain of their opinion of God? Their opinion, uh, I mean of John. Were they uncertain of their opinion of John? No, they weren't uncertain. They didn't believe John was sent from God. They did not believe him. They thought he was a crazy guy out in the wilderness. That's what they thought of John. However, when Jesus asked the question, their answer would not only reveal the authority of John's ministry, but the authority of Jesus' ministry. See, if they understood who John was, then they would have understood who Jesus was. If they understood who authorized John to do what he was doing, 
they would understand that the same God sent Jesus to do what he was doing. They had gotten John's ministry wrong. John was sent from God and they rejected John's ministry. This, these leaders rejected what the Holy Spirit of God was doing right in their midst. They rejected it. They rejected it. And because they got the ministry of John wrong, they also get the message and ministry of Jesus wrong. If they had eyes to see, they would have seen that John was sent from God. They would have seen Jesus was sent from God. God's Spirit was working in their midst, right under their noses, so to speak. (coughs) And they missed it. You know, we too have to be careful that we don't get so wrapped up in our religious opinions that we miss what Jesus is doing in our midst. Lately, we've seen a couple of high-profile personalities claim that they have been saved. Some people without knowing anything about these people and their situations have made professions, uh, pronouncements about their professions of faith. Some, you know, some are denouncing them or criticizing them or whatever. I, I want to tell you, I don't know anything about whether Kanye West or Lamar Odom were saved. But I do know this. Jesus Christ still saves sinners and we should expect him to do so in our midst. We should be praying for these men, their spiritual protection. If their conversion was real, there's going to be the whole host of the armies of hell will come against them just to be real truthful with you. And, and sometimes we tend to elevate public personalities. We tend to forget that if, if a person that's famous is safe, he's still a babe in Christ. He still has to grow in his faith. And we elevate them so quickly that sometimes that causes them to stumble later. Uh, we should be praying for them in their spiritual protection. And, and not, be, not be too quick about elevating them and asking them to speak uh, after they haven't even known the Lord for very long. But in telling you these truths... Not to be overly excited or overcritically, I want to make sure that we don't miss out on what the Spirit of God might be doing in our midst. People all around the world are still coming to Christ. All around the world. Uh, God's Spirit is moving. I know God can save famous people, and He's done it in the past. I know... um, that God is moving in ways in our time that, that a lot of people aren't recognizing, but it's, it's a mighty move of God. I've been reading reports recently of, of, of a great movement of God in the nation of Iran. In the nation of Iran. God is moving. God is saving. God is doing what God does. Saving sinners, bringing them into His kingdom Rescuing lives, that's what God is doing. And I, I don't want to miss the movement of God in my time. I don't want to be like a Rip Van Winkle. You remember the story of Rip Van Winkle who went to sleep and 20 years later he slept through the American Revolution? I don't want to be like Rip Van Winkle who sleeps through the most important spiritual events of my lifetime. We need to be careful 
not to be so critical of things that that we miss the movement of God. These these leaders were spiritually critical of everything that wasn't just like the way they wanted it done. Now, I'm not telling you to be gullible. I'm not encouraging you to be naive. The scripture tells us to test the spirits to see if they are from God. But I, I'm saying that we want to make sure that we don't become so hypercritical of everything that's different than the way we might do things or we might think things should be done that we miss the mighty working of God glorifying Himself among us in our time. You see, these leaders of Israel's religion miss the mighty movement of Almighty God in their nation, in their time. And I don't want to be one that that happens to, and I hope you don't either. False religion recognizes, refuses to recognize God's presence and power in their midst. There's a third identifying mark of false religion, and that's this. False religion pronounces God as first, but always puts self before God. Now, Jesus immediately, immediately goes into two parables. He goes into two parables that kind of uh, back up what he said to these, uh, these leaders. Um, he says, uh, there was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard. The son immediately responded, he won't go. I'm not going to do it. His first response was rebellion and disobedience. But after his initial rebellion and disobedience, he changes his mind. He has second thoughts. And later he goes and works in the vineyard. The man had a second son. And he gave him the same instruction. Son, go work in the vineyard. The second son immediately said, I'll go. I'll do it. However... The second son never goes and works in the vineyard. He never gets around to it. Now Jesus asked these leaders to whom he's talking, which of the two did the will of the father? And the chief priests and elders who came to him said, the first son did the will of the father. The first son who said he wouldn't go and then went, he's the one who did the will of the father. Jesus immediately applies this parable to these leaders who are talking to him. Look at what he says. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. John came to you in the way of righteousness. You did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Now Jesus said, the tax collector and the prostitutes at first basically said, we're not going to live God's way. We're not going to do God's will. But when John came and preached, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the most wicked people of the day in the the minds of these leaders, they believed John and their lives were changed. They entered the kingdom of God. However, like the second son, these supposed spiritual leaders who said yes to God, uh, never got around to doing what God asked him to do. Like the the, uh, second son, they they proclaimed God first. God is first in our lives. We love God. We're going to follow God. They claimed they said yes to doing God's will and God's work, but they never did it. 
They never did it. They didn't believe John, the one sent from God. They didn't believe him. They didn't see God at work through John. They missed God's way of righteousness. And that was bad enough. They missed it. They wouldn't believe God's prophet. But even when they saw the lives of these tax collectors and prostitutes changed, they still refused to believe that God was working in their midst. And because they refused to believe Jesus, believe John, they they missed Jesus also. Now we need to be careful, don't we? It's easy to say God is first. It's easy to say wherever he leads, I'll go. But if we simply keep living a way that does not show supreme love for God and sacrificial love for others, we only fool ourselves. False religion pronounces God is first, but always puts the self first. And the opposite is true. There are many that at one time say no to God. Uh, but then they, they hear the gospel, they, God moves in their life, and their hearts and minds are changed. Their hearts and minds are changed. They see the folly of their life outside of knowing, loving, and living for Christ, and they turn from that and they believe in Him, and they receive His presence into their lives, and they go to work in the, in the Father's vineyard. In the Father's vineyard. I read recently about a young man who uh, was in prison. He, w- he was in county jail in Colorado. And, uh, and, and he had murdered someone. He was in the county jail in Colorado. He would murdered someone. While he was in the county jail, some Christian volunteers came and they led Bible study and they taught. And they introduced the young man to Christ. And the young man believed And gave his life to Jesus. When he did that. He said. I've got to own up to what I've done. His lawyer said. Don't do it. If you own up to what you've done. You're going to spend the rest of your life. In prison. You'll never get out. And they advised him. Not to do it. They said, just let us, we'll tell you, we'll get, we'll get, you might get 20 years, but you won't get locked up for the rest of your life. But the young man said, I knew I couldn't do that anymore. And he confessed to his, to his crime and the judge sentenced him to life in prison. Now in the prison, as he was, uh, He got involved in the ministries inside the prison. And he began to be a leader of Christians inside the prison. And he knew that he would spend the rest of his life in prison. But because God had changed his heart and his mind, he accepted this as God's will. And he believes that God leaves him there to serve him until... Until he dies. Or until a a miracle happens. You see, if we say we love Jesus. If we say he's first. We got to do what he says. Right? We got to do what he says. And I know it's difficult sometimes to do what Jesus says. 
And I don't always do it, and neither do you. That's why we have a Savior. We have a Savior who saves us because we don't always do what He says. But it's something that we ought to want to do. It's something that ought to change our lives. And yes, it's, it's even though it's difficult... We can't just say, Jesus is first in my life, Jesus is first. It's got to make a difference in our lives. You see, we've got to go to work in the Father's vineyard, even if that vineyard might have been stay prison. Repentance and faith result in us working in the Father's vineyard and seeking to do the Father's will. But there's one more identifying mark of false religion that we see in this passage, and it's this. False religion never recognizes God's rightful claim upon life and never recognizes Jesus as Lord. Now Jesus followed with one more devastating parable. This parable is devastating. He said, There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. We find here a master who planted a vineyard and provided everything needed for that vineyard to be fruitful. He put a fence around it uh, to protect it from wild animals. He dug a wine press in it to process the grapes. He built a watch fire to provide warning and protection from anyone to come against it. He invested much into, into uh, making a new vineyard. Everything that was needed to make this vineyard successful, he provided. And it was quite an investment. I read as I was studying this passage that sometime it took like four years before any returns to come back when you start a new, uh, a new vineyard. And so we see the picture of the vineyard. Now in the Old Testament, the picture of the vineyard was often a picture of the people of God. And so, and so God... And as we read this parable, we're seeing God highly investing in his people and, and, and wanting his people to follow him. And so God, the, the owner builds the vineyard, and then he turns it over, he, he leases it to tenants, and then he goes to another country. Now, back to the story. When he turned it over to the tenants, the tenants worked the vineyard, and they agreed to provide the owner of the vineyard a portion of the crop. That's how it's done. A portion of the crop is payment for their lease. Well, when the season for fruit drew near, the scripture says, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same thing. The owner of the vineyard, at the proper time, sent his servants to collect his portion of the fruit. But the tenants disrespected him. Uh, They abused uh, those uh, people he sent. They killed and stoned them. This was a picture of the rebellion of many in the nation of Israel, of how they had rebelled when God sent his servants, the prophets, to them, had preached to them throughout history. And so instead of giving God his due, instead of giving the master of the vineyard his due, they just ignored the master of the vineyard. And abused his servants. Finally, the owner of the vineyard did something that no other owner of a vineyard would do. And we know this owner is not a human being when he's talking about them. This owner of the vineyard, representing God, was merciful beyond what any human owner would do. Was merciful beyond merciful. And he sent his son to them and said, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill him, 
and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty shocking story, isn't it? The merciful beyond merciful owner sends his son and they killed him. Who did the son represent? It's not hard for Christians to know who the son represents. The son represents Jesus himself. The son represents the son of God himself who came to save us from our sins. Who came, Jesus came knowing that he would die for the sins of the world. Jesus asked them after he told this parable, What therefore the owner of the vineyard do uh, do these tenants? They said, He'll put those wretches to a miserable end. Uh, you know, put those wretches to a wretched end. There's kind of a play on words in the original. And let, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him fruits in their season. Then Jesus brings out the hammer. Have you never read? Again, you remember this phrase from last week? Have you never read? He's talking to these people who supposedly know Scripture. Have you never read? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scriptures tell the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, has become the most important stone. Jesus was speaking directly to these leaders on that day. Jesus is saying, I'm the cornerstone, and you're rejecting me. In rejecting him, ultimately, it will not, it's not going to end Jesus, but they're going to be crushed in the end. They're going to be broken to pieces because they rejected the one God sent to save them, to redeem them. You see, it's all about Jesus, isn't it? It's all about Jesus. Jesus then says the kingdom will be given to a new kind of people. You see, the kingdom of God today is not made up of one nation. It's not made up of simply uh, Jewish people. It is made up of some Jewish people, but it's also made of people from every tribe and language and people and a nation who believe and follow Jesus. That's who the kingdom of God is given to. That's who are working in the vineyard today. Well, how did they respond? Well, not very well, right? They knew Jesus was talking about them. Jesus was confronting the confronters. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds. Because they held him to be a prophet. Their false and showy religion never recognized the servants of God in their midst. Their false and showy religion refused to recognize God's rightful claim upon their lives. You see, God has a rightful claim upon every person here. Because he made you. He created you. He created you to know, love, and live for him. He created every person to do that. And we find our purpose in life, as Brian prayed earlier, when, we, when we, we recognize and submit to God and say, God, I want to live life your way. They, they, they refuse to recognize God's rightful claim upon their lives. The false religion refused to recognize Jesus as Lord. They refused to recognize the Son of God. God created them and us to live for His glory, but they continued just to live for themselves and never submitted to God's rule and reign over their lives. They never gave God what they should have given to God. 
They never acknowledge Jesus as Lord. You see, false religion never recognizes God's rightful claim upon upon its life, and it never recognizes Jesus as Lord. Can you recognize false religion when you see it? False religion looks alive, but it never makes a difference in how people live. False religion refuses to recognize God's presence and power in their very midst. False religion pronounces God as first, but always puts self before God. False religion never recognizes God's rightful claim upon a life, and it never recognizes Jesus as Lord. Christ Jesus denounces false religion, fruitless religion, and replaces it with his life-giving presence. You see, I'm not here today to tell you about religion. I'm here to tell you about the one who saves, and his name is Jesus. And I'm here to tell you about the one who wants to live inside of you, and the one who is worth everything that it might cost you to live for him. It's wonderful to know him and to love him and to live for him. And, and, and I'm not talking about going through the ritual of religion. Who wants that? I don't want that. I don't think you want that either. I'm here to tell you that the God who loves you, there's a Christ who wants to save you, who will enter your life, who will guide you, who will use you to glorify his name, and you can know him and know the true and living God through him. Do you have the life-giving presence of Jesus living you today? Have you turned from yourself and truly believed in Jesus? The stone the builders rejected? The stone, even today, many elites reject Jesus. Have you embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord? He's the chief cornerstone. You can receive Jesus, His life-giving presence. You can receive Him today. Let's pray together. If you're here today and, and you need to talk to someone, maybe this is all new to you, you need to talk to someone, or you, you know, and we have a couple people that will be back there, uh, David and, uh, uh, David and uh, I think uh, Grace, is that who I have? I got my pages mixed up. Anyway, we have a couple people <laughs> who will talk to you and pray with you about knowing Jesus, coming to know Him. If you, if you want to talk to someone about it and just say, I don't really understand this, would you tell me a little bit more about it? Or maybe you do, you do understand it in such a way that you want, to, you want to today give your life to Christ. Or maybe you need to pray about something else. Or maybe something's going on in your life and you just want someone to, to pray for you today. You just need to talk it over with someone. That's what uh, those, uh, those people will help you to do. They'll be at the bottom of the steps uh, while we sing our last song. And, uh, and they'll be there just for a few minutes after we uh, close our worship. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, that you don't give us religion. You give us your living presence. Lord, you don't just tell us to go through rituals. But Lord, you say, whoever believes in you will have eternal life. That if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We can know your, your eternal presence. 
we can be saved from ourselves and our sin and our and all the choices we've made that have messed up our lives. And you can save us to, to live for you. I pray that we would not miss out on what you are doing in our world today. I pray that we would not, Lord, even as we follow you, sometimes, Lord, we, we do things just out of ritual, just out of habit. Help us, Lord, to do them, Lord, to know you better, to love you more fully. Lord, help us to do them because, Lord, we come to you because you first came to us and you saved us. And so, Lord, just open our hearts and minds to, to not turn our relationship to you into duty and ritual. Please, Lord, work in our lives. Speak life to those who, they need to know that you love them today. They need to know that, that there's a Savior who cares for them. And I pray that they would understand that even today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.